You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 482, the pointlessness of pop lyrics, which band is the heaviest of the heaviest, and our complicated relationships with B-sides. That's all coming up after Jesus Jones and International Bright Young Thing. They come from Bradford-on-Avon and mm. they had a string of 13 hit singles from 1989 to 1997. This was the sixth of that run, number seven in the UK in 1990. Jesus Jones, an international bright young thing. Well, firstly, that always lifts my spirits. I'm always happy to hear that. And secondly, it's interesting that you reel off how many hits they've had because they seem to be one of those bands that 
when I say time forgot, they were very much of their time. And it's easy to forget just how big they were because they were everywhere for a few years. And now, you know, there's no they don't pop up in any retrospectives. I mean, I get the impression that apart from the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays, the next tier down of the baggy era, everyone's a bit embarrassed by them, aren't they? There's never one of those big heavy docs about it on BBC Four on a Friday night. You get the impression that Ned's Atomic Dustbin and uh, the Wonder Staff and Jesus Jones may be neglected for a while yet. But I, I think they were I think they were a great dance pop band. Yeah, perhaps they were of their time, but yeah, I'd like to see them reappraised at some point. I think. Here's the thing: I, I said they came, from, they come from Bradford on Avon in Wiltshire. Mm. I, I learned something this week is mm. um, re- relevant to this. Um, the the word shrapnel is relatively new. I didn't know this. It was named after Major General Henry Shrapnel, who invented a horrible shelling technique for artillery. Mm. And what's the relevance of that? He came from Bradford-on-Avon, but I didn't know that Shrapnel <laughs> was named after a bloke, Henry well, Shrapnel. Well, I mean, it's, I suppose when you think about it, it's perhaps not altogether surprising, but still, there are some uncharitable souls out there that would argue what did more damage, Shrapnel or Jesus Jones. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not, I don't want to go down that route. It seems unkind. <laughs> Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Parish Council. It's episode 482. I'm Terence Stackham and uh, listeners, I imagine she's expecting this. And here's our very own international bright young thing. It's Juliet Harris. I mean, the uh, the main reason that I come on this podcast is that you insist on referring to me as young. I mean, that is the big draw for me, really. <laughs> I'm not. I, <laughs> isn't everyone, man? No, I'm. Yeah. Uh, I yes, I I I wouldn't say I was young. I I continue to be the oldest millennial swinger in town. I'm the oldest you can be while still being a millennial. I always will dine out on this forever. But anyway, yes, I uh, I am here. I'm right here right now as oh, indeed was oh, one of their oh, other hits oh, oh, oh i was with you there very good thank you thank you very much and george during the week i had an epiphany mm. um oh it just keeps happening to you yeah. I, I, I live for being called young and your epiphanies basically well it was if i was on a pop music equivalent of the road to damascus and mm. It's all the due road to, a... to Bradford upon Avon, perhaps. Indeed, yes. Um, it's all due to a quote about song lyrics by Florence Welch of Florence right. and the Machine, of whom, whom I, can... I have I have a lot of time for actually. I was going to say of whom I confess I know very little, so I oh. wish I had your knowledge. But being interviewed in Ireland, she's asked about the lyrics to her songs and why she doesn't print those lyrics on her albums, and her reply was illuminating and mm. a revelation. Um, She said lyrics, unlike poetry, can often appear banal when printed as their magic comes from the musical context and rendition. That is so absolutely simple, but not something I'm consciously realised before. And I was thinking the best way to look at this is if if we consider some hits over the years, going way back through Little Richard's Tutti Frutti, and then to do rom 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 by the crystals, sugar <laughs> sugar by the arches, mbop by Hanson. All of the lyrics written down look completely daft if you mm. were just to read them outside of that context. But of course, when they're coupled with the music and the performance and the production, they create a memorable whole experience. So the thing is, lyrics don't matter, Jules. 
Well, and this is a, a, and I had to say, I think that Florence is often sort of written off in some places, but she, she, she has more depth to her than people think. And this is a, I think, a very fly observation. I will be slightly, uh, slightly catty at this point and say that Florence is is claiming to be two years younger than me. Uh, we'll leave that there. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I think that there is that you know, it's it's a valid point that you know that I think particularly when it comes to pop lyrics and and you know real because i think there is such a thing as pop you know sort of classic pop records it is i agree with her very much about the whole experience um having said that though um that, that there are lyrics sometimes i think that can that can sort of touch us and i think that lyrics are at their best i think when they are saying they're not saying what you expect them to say and also when they're perhaps not trying to be deep i mean let you know the risible imagine by john lennon oh, thinks yeah. it is very profound whereas weirdly across the universe which thanks to phil spector's terrible disney production mm. is you know everyone thinks it's sort of rather babyish the actual lyrics to across the universe i think are actually really beautiful and really profound so so maybe when people are not trying to be in inverted commas profound um they they can speak to us a bit more um i think florence's point that if they're actually printed down they can look banal it it depends depends whose lyrics they are there are some people who tend more towards poetry than than they do necessary lyrics i would say your Joni mitchell's lyrics mm. would probably look quite good when they were written down my pj harvey's lyrics look quite good when they're written down particularly and I, a, a particular lyric that has stuck with me over time of pj harvey's just because it, she uh, she wrote this it was from the album is this desire and she had gone through quite a large life crisis between uh to bring my love and is this desire and she had had a very intense relationship with nick cave famously that ended very quickly and she found herself completely directionless to the point where she apparently had told the producer flood that she had plans to retrain in africa as a nurse at one point wow. she was completely in a in a bizarre place and she's always been someone that has claimed that you know she won't discuss her lyrics this is interesting she i'm surprised mm. that she published she published a book called and I say her lyrics, she published a book called Poetry, some yes. of which then made its way into her songs and is very much on a similar theme, but are not particularly song lyrics. And she always refuses to discuss her lyrics because she always claims that people read meanings into them that aren't there or people ascribe them as being part of her experience and she says no they're not about my life you know in you know i haven't really drowned my baby as in down by the water you know that i'm just writing i'm yeah, writing yeah. songs uh, but interestingly some of the lyrics on this this desire you know this idea of can people separate themselves from their art um it's it, it, the the song my beautiful Leah is it's really interesting and in that it's quite heavy for a pj harvey song and it's got quite a heavy sort of electronic beat in it it's almost kind of techno-esque it's moving towards tricky style territory and um Anybody that writes a lyric that says she only had nightmares and her sadness never lifted and slowly over the years her lovely face twisted is probably not in a good place. Mm. And uh, I think by itself, it just has stayed with me for a very long time. And yes, it does get power backed up with this kind of distorted sort of leaning towards industrial techno kind of backing i think it is possible to come up with phrases that 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 stick in people's minds the thing that's interesting about songs meaning what they say they mean 
people do people think that the word love in a song means it is a happy song mm. um the one i love by rem is apparently one of the most used songs at weddings um it's actually about a really bitter breakup oh, no. and if you listen to the lyrics mm. um this one goes out to the one i've left behind, left behind a simple yeah. prop to occupy my time and that gets played at weddings everywhere <laughs> along with the incredibly creepy every breath you take by oh. the police is apparently used well, to be a bit, bit exactly they used it in a government help you know sort of helpline style campaign if someone's stalking you ring this number it used to get used at weddings all the time apparently maybe the problem is when it comes to some pop lyrics is that people just aren't very good at listening and maybe pj harvey's got a point in not discussing her lyrics in that different like music means different things to different people words can mean different things to different people and one person's interpretation of something can be really different to another um i presume that uh the rem probably um <laughs> probably uh don't uh, you know it's, uh, michael's stuff is eye-rolly about it but i suspect they probably don't mind the money from public performance mm. rights but um uh again um uh, Semi-Charm Life by Third Eye Blind sounds like it's a song about dissatisfaction. It's actually about drug addiction. And, and again, people not always reading into things. Two of the pop songs that get played the most on the radio, I think, certainly during the 90s and the early noughties, that get played all the time. Radio playlists love them. Well, There She Goes by The Lars, um, a perfect jangly pop song, and Under the Bridge by uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Both songs, oh, I, I can add a third to this, Pure and Simple by The Lightning Seeds, all radio-friendly, jangly 90s hits oh, that are all about being addicted to heroin. So, um, <laughs> and uh, no one ever seems to, uh, it seems to take a long, and also let's not forget the brilliance that was BBC using Perfect Day by Lou Reed yes. for their Children in Need campaign. It's such a perfect day. I'm glad I've spent it with you. They think he's singing to a person. He's not. He is also singing to heroin. Yeah. And that made it as far as the final cut to which, uh, which someone went in the editing suite you know what this is about and everyone went no <laughs> so so perhaps the problem with lyrics is not lyrics themselves it's people perhaps failing to understand them not or, or, yeah sometimes in a way that, that has quite chaotic consequences the bbc i think found out although having said that this was the late 90s so no one had social media to erupt on mm. so i think everybody just thought it was quite a stupid thing that had happened and there were a couple of sneery articles about it in the cultural broadsheets and then everybody moved on with their lives it's another prime example of uh cheery pop songs about drugs golden brown by the stranglers yes one, cheery waltz, nobody realizing yeah. that he's actually singing about his addiction to heroin no Indeed. um record companies they were always reluctant to put lyrics on the cover of singles and mm. albums because it would have had a <laughs> negative effect on the yes. sales of sheet music oh yes um, true i forgot that yeah yeah so back in the sort of 60s 70s that was the main reason because people they actually still used to go into record shops and buy the sheet music and learn how to play um is, i want to hold lovely. your hand on the piano yeah well but, i i have i have the sheet lyric uh, the sheet um music uh, to Can't Buy Me Love, original from 1964, framed and up in my front room. How lovely. That's fantastic. A now, friend so, of mine found it in her attic and said, would Juliet like this? Oh, how lovely. <laughs> no, no, no it's, it's often said, and I, I mean, I don't know any different, that Sgt Pepper was the first album to print the lyrics. Mm, and maybe, uh, maybe. that was only because Paul McCartney argued very strongly for them to be included. And mm. I do remember... Um, 
gazing at them reverently as I played the album almost endlessly in the summer of 67. But, um, you know, do they have the same impact without the music? But I do, I think your point is very well made. I feel even that when I think of memorable lyrics by Joni Mitchell or Jackson Brown, um, perhaps even um, Bridge Over Troubled Water, you could say, they still... Mm. Maybe they only have the true resonance when they're in the context of the music and the performance and the production. But I do see what you mean. I I can picture in my mind or hear in my mind lyrics by um, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, if if we if we like PJ mm. Harvey as well, um, without the music, and they do stand up. But I think it's more the sort of pop side of things rather mm. than the, the the more thought out. Yes. Um, and at the beginning of this coronavirus crisis, um, they had, do you remember that when we were all hand washing before everything shut down, yeah. we were still going places, we were all hand washing for 20 seconds. And uh, this is this is what I love about how uh, democratic the Internet is. A 17 year old IT student with too much time on his hands. <laughs> built a tool whereby he managed to get the government hand-washing chart, which demonstrates all the stages of hand-washing. I think there's about 12. And you could, if you put the your favourite song in, it would put the first 20 seconds of the lyrics over the top of the hand-washing chart. Of course, everybody I know did everything to it. And there are certain songs which, uh, I have to say, Wanna Be by the Spice Girls, that's a lyric that um, <laughs> not well, necessarily yes. as good as that as that, but it does look funny when the person starts off washing their hands and the first lyric is, ha, <laughs> yo, i tell you what I want in this house. It looks really good with hand-washing. And my final thought on lyrics is, um, you know that I'm very fond of Radiohead, particularly uh, I think Tom York is often painted as being minimalist. Mm. I think he's just got a very sly sense of humour and this was demonstrated in the, uh, the, the the notes and thank yous and acknowledgements in OK Computer, where uh, you will often see this phrase written in a, written in sort of you know, reproduced sleeve notes, but Radiohead put their own spin on it. Lyrics reproduced by kind permission brackets, even though we wrote them those brackets. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent way to finish that. Um, coming right up, who is the heaviest of the heaviest? Mm. Oh, that's right after Paloma Faith. When the lights in my street go out and all the people lie sleeping under clouds and they're dreaming of better than this. Then my brother calls me and he's saying... Oh, I can hear the angels praying That we can do better than this Cause I saw a mountain, I thought it's too high I heard the birds whisper, you can fly I saw you and I knew I can do better than this Better than this I heard a language I
that as well as lacking knowledge of Florence Welsh and Florence the Machine, I'm not overflowing with awareness of the career of Paloma Faith. But you see, if I was an outraged internet commenter type, I would yeah. ask you why you hated women, Terence. But as <laughs> frankly, I'm not that hysterical. I've just I said I love Joni Mitchell. Absolutely. It's just a gap in your knowledge, as my yes. school reports always said. <laughs> no, but I heard this and um, on your Smooth Sailing show, actually, oh. and I really loved it. And I checked and it, it did didn't make the chart at all nice. and it's it's very low in radio airplay listings it hardly got played anywhere at all but particularly in mainstream and national radio which is very peculiar um it's a lovely song it's a broadly about the times that we've been living in this year it's from september 2020 paloma faith and better than this it's lovely, isn't it? I wasn't familiar with it. Apparently, it it started to get a bit of a second life being used on what I can best describe as montages on reality TV programmes. Mm-hmm. And occasionally it gets picked up on adverts or backing music on TV. There are often songs that have a strange kind of second life because they become very popular Um I, I had a friend that worked for a production company when we just left university and she said that certain songs actually became popular when they were used in TV programs and they were used because they were cheap and easy to get clearance for. And uh, the less successful a record had been, the the more likely that you were sure. going to be able to get hold of it. She said that the most di- interesting, the most difficult people she ever found, this would have been probably about 2006 when we used to get on the train together, she said that the the hardest band that she found to get clearance for were Blur. She said it was always really difficult to get clearance to them because I think... Uh, the sense was they had already made their money from song two yeah. and it had become a bit ubiquitous as a result. And I think they weren't entirely comfortable with that. But um, no, I'd, I'd, again, you were uh, Paloma Faith, I think, is a very underrated British songwriter. She did. An, they had, gave her an electric prom. The BBC do okay. these kind of electric mm. prom things. And she, it was really good. And I think she's incredibly talented and is also extremely good fun. Whenever she is a guest on Graham Norton's radio show, mm. it is worth it's worth hearing her because she's just really 
she's just really ed- sort of entertaining. And she, she went on once and was complaining that she had to say hello to her friend Catherine. And could Graham say hello to her friend Catherine, who's out in her sports car listening? So Graham did this, and Plymouth Dave went, honestly, it's not even a sports car, it's a Vauxhall Corsa. And then they <laughs> cut to a record. Jim <laughs> Russell Brand attended his television show once, and sort of, you know, she made a, a comment about people whose marriages broke up after five minutes and then rolled around at Russell Brand, who had just uh, split yeah, up from yeah, Casey yeah. Perry after five minutes. I, I rather like Ploma Faith. I think she's quite, um, she's, a, she's a spirited soul. She did the Guardian Q&A once where they, they asked us sort of the same questions. And they said, what was your most embarrassing moment? To which she replied, I thought heroically, I am quite embarrassing all the time. <laughs> and I feel very similar to her. Like, I felt very seen when she said that. So, so I, I, in another, in a fairer world, Paloma Thafe would be a national treasure. I think she's also spoken out very well. I think about pregnancy and how scary pregnancy is, and what happens when things go wrong. And I think she's giving a voice to a lot of women. So, a lot of time for Paloma. I think she's great. Well, I'll, I'm definitely going to explore more of her music in the, in the next week because, uh, it, it, it's, as you say, it's a uh, an element missing from uh, my my knowledge. What are one of the most um, helpful and healthier developments in technology of recent years has been the regulation of decibel levels in live mm, venues. Agreed. Yeah, and to accompany that, really the. Uh, the modernization of amplification systems that mean a live act can still be relatively loud, but beautifully mixed and not painful to listen to, which, um, I mean, luckily my hearing isn't too bad, but it reminds Mm. me, I think it's definitely been affected by pre-regulation gigs. I can remember probably the loudest and most painful live music concert I ever went to was in the early 70s. Uh, I was still at school. The Who, it was The Mm. Who. And I think it was at at the Roundhouse in London. It was so loud that I literally and genuinely couldn't hear for a week. All I could hear was a ringing sound. And my friend Steve from school, when we got outside uh, the Roundhouse, his ears were actually actually bleeding, Mm. which, you know, is not a good thing. No wonder. Pete Townsend is deaf, you know. No, absolutely. But even today, though, Jules, bands still seem to take merit from claiming to ignore decibel restrictions and fight for the title of heaviest sound. Well, yes, it seems to be. I mean, I do find it a little bit tedious, I must admit. Now that that I've got a little bit older and a little bit wiser, I do find it to be a little bit masters of the universe, tedious shouting boys, I must admit. I didn't always feel that way. Um, I do now, though, it has to be said. Um, There are still, uh, there's still a sort of a battle for the heaviest music ever made. Um, I um, rather enjoy the uh, Brighton-based cartoon people, Modern Toss, um, who says uh, that, that there's a cartoon of them? Uh, the man behind uh, just walked into a vinyl shop and says, "Have you got anything bass heavy?" To which um, the man behind the counter comes. This one's about real barrel irrigator. It comes with a free adult nappy and some plastic sheeting. And I do feel there is a little bit of you know of this kind of this this bands only feel like they've made it if they've managed to deafen someone or or you know loosen various functions in the process. I remember like you going to the uh, my first 
big rock concert. Um, I've been to see bands like Steel Ice Band with my parents, and that was, you know, very gentrified. It was sad. I went as a 14, there aren't many 14 year olds who went, who would go to see Cleo Lane and Johnny Dankworth with their dad, but I did and enjoyed it very much at the Delaware Pavilion in Bexhill, which is all, which was all very seated and all very, you know, sort of not too loud and, and that sort of thing. I went to see a band called Ash. Um, who 90s list 90s kids will remember the, the band Dash, you know a sort of a a, a, a poppy-ish leaning band that were also quite a heavy rock band and they played at the fabulous venue St Mary in the Castle in Hastings and I remember we were still quite near the front I was with my best friend her mum was sat up in the in the balcony sort of kind of there on patrol with us yeah. and I, I would have been about 16 I think I was and I remember seeing the size of the speakers and just thinking well that can't be the speaker because why is it that big and then Uh when the band really started playing it was the first time I'd ever felt my chest move in and out involuntarily to music that feeling I think that lots of people are missing at the moment um and I remember coming out thinking oh you know that that is incredible I can tell you the band specifically that gave me tinnitus they're not together anymore they were called Coyote and they were a brilliant young Hastings band that played psychedelic music and I went to review them for a local publication and I couldn't hear for a week and Mm. I still like you and I still have slight tinnitus in one ear as a result really um i remember my favorite um so as a result of that i became a very late adopter of earplugs which i enjoy very much you can buy really good ones now that kind of remove bad frequencies and leave good frequencies in which means that you know there there's some really good ones on the market that are quite affordable so i always prince charles at (laughs) live this is me so i'm always now now wearing these out and about i remember going to see a, a the brilliant band British Sea Power did a project called Sea of Brass or Brass if you're from where they're from uh, which which meant they did it as a soundtrack I think for a show for a film on BBC4 and I think it might have been called From the Sea to the Land I think and they played with a brass band I think they were the Redbridge brass band and there are about 35 of them and this band and it was it, it meant to have been performed at the Gateshead Sage and again this is at the Delhi War and you could tell that it was a show that was designed for a bigger venue because <laughs> by the time you got the rock band of who are very fond of you know wearing flora and fauna on stage and decorating their amps with large bushes when you had the six peak rock band and them and Redbridge Brass Band they were all kind of shoved shoulder to shoulder a bit on this stage it didn't look terribly comfortable but I was there with my friend we were on free tickets because I was reviewing this for a publication and we sat down and I remember she said to me oh it might be quite loud and I said I'll put my earplugs in 20 minutes in I took one out to scratch my ear it was the loudest thing oh, I've ever man. I don't know how people couldn't wear not that it was you know sort of mm. loud as in metally brass bands are really loud and when you combine them with a with a uh, with a rock band that it, it was just I mean it was magnificent but I'm really glad I experienced it in earplugs because I probably would have been quite overwhelmed otherwise it, it's amazing how loud things can be oh and the the other advantage wearing earplugs of course was I, I used to go with a now sadly late friend of mine called Neil to watch the band wire play a lot particularly in very small venues we'll be able to seek them out and go and see them we saw them at the constitutional club in lewis which is basically a sort of a glorified working men's club it's very much that kind of setup and there is a stage and 
we had earplugs on. Neil used to work at the Royal College of, of Anesthetists. He was a buildings manager. As a result of which, he used to come to every gig armed, because he was a very generous soul, with about 20 packets of foam earplugs, because they just used to be available there in bowls. And he would, you know, he would bring them down and distribute them at the beginning of gigs. And I remember we both had earplugs in at this. And we very much enjoyed watching why because i i enjoyed watching because i was always the youngest most female person of the audience there it was all my friend neil was quite a few years older than me it was all people of his age you put it it's always old gits like me that go and see why mm-hmm. you'd see men see the, the audience would be almost made entirely made up of men and some women that were obviously going there as girlfriends and wives if you see what i mean mm-hmm. and i remember we the, the why i had this habit recently they don't really play why are wags Indeed, <laughs> who knew that was a thing? Apparently, post-rock wives are uh, are a thing. But anyway, they uh, they 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 do this thing where they do, they do play the recent albums, which are extremely good and very melodic. But they don't really play the hits. And they had this habit of going off and then coming back for the encore and starting with about six and a half minutes of. There were rumours that it was meant to be for some ballet, opera thing, performance art thing, but it was basically just noise. Essentially, it was Ooh. feedback and. I, w- I will always picture Neil stood there, the two of us stood there in earplugs, laughing our heads off at the distress of others around us. And I remember seeing you know, all of these, all of the post-rock wives filed out with hands over their ears to try and escape this kind of god-awful music. And we would just stand there in hysterics. And like, like the helpful people that, um, that you know, that, that one would one would expect, really. But um, no, I... Like you, I'm not sure. I even if we do get into a stage of gig going again, I will still be doing it in my earplugs because I learnt to my cost. Uh, you know, at least I learnt early on, I suppose, before I did any more damage to my ears. That that you know, it just isn't worth it. There is a payback for those things, and you know, I I mean, there are certain bands that kind of make a virtue of it. The band Swans are famously loud to the point where my friend tried to go and see them in the Brighton Dome once and they said that they had to leave the main auditorium and when they walked through the antechamber so not even the main auditorium there was someone vomiting in the antechamber from the sheer noise that was that was swammed I mean I think one of their albums is called something like Noise Terror or something and that is essentially what they are I don't really I don't know if it adds to their appeal I'm I'm maybe I'm just old and boring now but I just think you know I'd I'd almost want to say look just play a tune which I believe was your review of Radiohead at Glastonbury one year but um, I just uh, I just I you know I'm not sure that I I, you know when you're 18 and in the world you know and you want everything to be as loud as possible then maybe that has an appeal but there is a payback there is a price and I'm not really sure I'm that into it really well, the punk era from which Wire sort of built their career was it was one of the big hurrahs mm. of the never mind the decibels uh, yes. sort of approach to gigs, and there was something even there was something even more ear bending than the Who at the Roundhouse listening to uh, the Clash or the Damned in small pubs in London in seventy six seventy seven, rather like you're describing in these smaller venues, you know, down in the south. And the worst of it was that because they all went for volume over quality or finesse, mm. you only knew a song had finished when the noise stopped. And um, <laughs> often it was great. Yeah, it's not a great thing. Often it was hard to distinguish what song they were playing the slits uh, certainly mm, covered up uh, their they covered up their musical inability by just mm. playing at maximum volume with uh 
with Ariana screaming above an absolute mountain of noise. And I think wow. I mentioned I mentioned some time ago uh, about seeing the Sex Pistols at Brunel University. But yes, again, you did. Yeah. yeah, even even though I knew their songs inside mm. out, we we couldn't tell couldn't what tell. they were playing. It was just Johnny Rotten bellowing over a, a sort of <laughs> avalanche of, as you described it, chest thumping, sort of ear drenching mm. noise. So. These are bands still aiming to be the loudest of the heaviest. I mean, like you, I say good luck one and all, but equally you you won't see me in the audiences as they as they blow out of their speakers. That's for sure. <laughs> Next up, how come B-sides are suddenly big news? Juliet will explain all after a B-side from Pavement. your passes you'll end up with molasses cauterizing syrup and syrup and molasses and i'm checking out the asses the assets that attract us to anything that moves we're deep inside the grooves and it's time to shake the rashes because someone's gonna cash in the plot it turns again the reference starts to turn well, show me a word that rhymes with pavement them on a spit and uh, don't you try to etch it or permanently sketch it or you're gonna catch a bad bad cold and the freaks have stormed the white house i moved into a lighthouse it's on a scenic quay it's so so far away far away from the beginning the shroud is made of linen the yearling took the purse the goth kid has a hearse Quaking kiwis, they are home baking minds wide open. Truly, leisure, a leisure suit is nothing. It's nothing to be proud of in this late century. And I'm asking you to hold me just like the morning paper. Pitch between your pointer, your index, and your thumb. It's a semi.
an interesting tune for reasons that we'll discuss. It's, you know, it, it's a B-side. It's a very pleasant tune, I think. I enjoy it. It's a nice tune to have around. You wouldn't necessarily say it was the greatest ever, hence why it's possibly a B-side. But that that was pavement and that was Harness Your Hopes. Well, I, I realise that part of it, of that that, uh, that song, is an exercise in rhyming. But I'm very mm. much taken with their pronunciation of what they say as quay. In fact, the word <laughs> key, Q-U-A-Y, mm. that, you know, like a harbour. Quay, is that the way Americans pronounce key? I'd like to think so. Mm, I do as well. Yeah, it is. It's it's well. I, I've come across Americans before that asked me if I could direct them to. Uh, they have a literal pronunciations for some things, and other things they read in too many sort of. Um, well, put it this way: I was once stopped by a very charming American couple on a train who asked me if it was going to lose, and it <laughs> took me a very long time before I finally fell in with the fact they were saying Lewis, not lose. But of course, lose is spelt lose. It's L E W E S. It's not. It's not spelt with an I at the end. I was also asked once for directions to somewhere by a, a, a charming, I think they were Australian rather than American, but a charming couple who asked me to, to tell them where Luga Booga was. Go Loughborough. Luga Booga. Loughborough. Loughborough, Loughborough. Gosh. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I do have sympathy for Americans and, 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 and you know, sort of non-Brits for no pronunciation of things because we do say things in stupid ways, particularly place names. True enough. This year, social media, especially Twitter and Reddit, have mm. been aflame with discussions about that pavement track and its position in a mystery surrounding why certain songs, often B-sides, are top of an artist's most played tracks um, on streaming services. What's going on, Jules? Well, luckily, because I am, you know, as as this as this program's youth contingent, I am obviously at the coalface of modern trends. Uh, no, in reality, I was reading the weekly email of Pop Bitch, which is still going, which I'm still a very big fan. It always has interesting things, as well as its kind of scurrilous celebrity gossip and, you know, sort of crude jokes and things. It often shares articles that are really interesting. And this is from the, the website Stereo Gum. Um, the headline is... Why is the obscure B-side, Harness Your Hopes, Pavement's top song on Spotify? It's mm. complicated. Now, Pavement are one of those those bands, I think, who probably are still bigger in America than they are over here, I think. They would be very much described as what the Americans would call the college rock scene. Mm. And over here, perhaps, you know, they were, they were very highly rated by our music press at the time in the late 90s, early noughties. Certainly when I was a teenager, they were sort of one of the cooler bands that, you know, they were always cited as when uh, Blur nearly split up and then made uh, Blur in 1997, which was a much kind of edgier, grungier sounding record than The Great Escape. Uh, it was always alleged that um, Damon Albarn and Graham Coxon were sort of at loggerheads. And the one thing that they bonded over was the fact that Graham Coxon really liked pavement and wanted to sound like pavement and sound a bit scuzzier. And actually Damon Albarn agreed. And that's how they managed to, to move Blur on. Um, this uh, article begins, and this is very interesting. A couple of years ago, Stephen Malkmus, who's the main creative source of pavement, walked into a shop and didn't recognise himself. He was one of, he was one of his daughters 
daughter stopping at a gluten-free bakery, which he describes himself as very Portland, which is where they're from in Oregon, <laughs> where the pavement song Harness Your Hopes came on, a song he had written and recorded more than two decades prior while leading the band. The guitar playing that was chugling over the speakers was partly his own. I love chugling as an expression, by the way. Then the few moments while the vocals kicked in, his brain couldn't place it. He said, at first I thought, oh, they're playing Tumbling Dice by the Rolling Stones, he remembers now. Then it was playing, I thought, well, this is a cool place. Little did I know it was just on Spotify or something. And so um, uh, it was at that point, it was still a deep cut. It was a B-side that was recorded during the sessions for Brighton the Corners, which was their 97 album. They released it in 99. It was initially on the CD-only Spit on a Stranger EP. I came across it because I think it was a B-side. They used it again as a B-side to um, Carrot Rope, I think, which is the first pavement record that I really loved that came from Terra Twilight. And uh, so the song remained one of the ones that only real sort of big radio sort of uh, radio fans knew. It got ex- included on the expanded reissue of Bright in the Corners in 2008, which had lots of extra material on it. Um, it started to become a minor fan favourite. Um, and, and, you know, it was suddenly it's sort of a single-worthy non-album track. Uh, you know, a, a bakery employee might sneak it onto the work playlist as a subtle way to kind of make the, 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 the place a little <laughs> bit more edgy. But then something really odd happened. So in the last few years, the song's gone rocketing up the charts on Spotify. It's Spotify's number one song on Pavement's page. It's had over 28 million plays to date. Um, Seven million more than Cut Your Hair, which is probably the song that that casual indie fans would know Pavement for doing for. it's all of a sudden became a standard. How did it happen? And lots of people have been puzzling about it. So you say on Reddit, Reddit and Twitter. Um, there, someone wondered that the song might have been featured on a prominent uh, Spotify playlist mm. and then just snowballed from there. Um, <laughs> Stephen Walters, I love, I love how nonchalant he is. I heard it was on a playlist or something. He says, I'm not an expert on Spotify, but you know, one of those Monday moods or whatever the F they do. <laughs> Fair play, Stephen Walters. Um, Damon Krakowski then looked into it. His band was Galaxy 500, uh, a shoegazing kind of era band. Um, He couldn't work out why Strange became his band's top Spotify track by a long way, again, in a similar way, without being a single. It was never particularly popular in the past, um, and it wasn't it wasn't on any of the big playlists. It wasn't on, you know, their Monday mm. moods or whatever the F they do, as Steve Morton has put it so well. And in June 2018, he, he Krakowski writes a blog about this and a Spotify employee comments and says, and this is great, when people say, what would you like to be when you grow up? My name is Juliet Harris. And when I grow up, I want to have the job title data alchemist at Spotify, please. I would like that. And you're basically a music wizard, aren't you, for a living? So Glenn McDonald is a music wizard, aka data alchemist at Spotify. He'd taken an interest into it and looked and looked into it. What he found was that the sudden jump in plays for Strange began in January 2017. That at this point in time, Spotify switches something called autoplay, which is a preset in, in a Spotify user's preference panel, from off to on. And what autoplay does is that it queues up music that apparently 
resembles what you've just been listening to based on a a series of son, sonic signifiers that are basically too too complicated to explain but mm. it seems like strange has been algorithmically determined to set the by galaxy 500 to sound similar to a lot of other music presumably because of its pace because of the key it's played in because of the guitar track and it was frequently being auto played to the point that it took on a life of its own um, <laughs> and it would seem that um, it, and, and Krakowski said um, that uh, that he got called up uh, by the Spotify employee because of that blog post he said he got really interested in it as an engineering problem because he thought that, that they pinpointed something they hadn't realised like because you switch things in the program it's the butterfly effect so spotify seems to have managed to have a capacity to create hits without even realizing it um you know but when it comes to galaxy 500 it even the, the bloke himself Krakowski, says there's just no way that it would happen before the flipping spotify plays and uh, harness your hopes it seems to be exactly the same thing um so there's a there's a it's another touchdown alternative rock band from the 80s and 90s um you know sort of with, with a with an inexplicable number one song it would seem that if you use the Wayback machine harness your hopes is nowhere to be seen on the popular track section of spot pavement spotify uh, page until 2017 when it jumps to the trump needless to say um spotify don't want to get too involved with this uh they wouldn't provide an interview to mcdonald they wouldn't uh, to anyone else who wanted to speak about the autoplay function and how it might not be a uh, fueling phenomenon but they did confirm the accuracies of glenn's statements as they appear on damon krukowski's blog and they left it at that um someone it seems to be something that people are really interested in uh, a, a woman who's a visiting scholar at ba uh, basil university uh, maria erickson dr maria erickson um she co-authored authored a book on the company which was called spotify teardown in 2019 which investigated the streaming giant and their algorithms to the point that spotify's legal department put them a, put a cease and desist notice because oh, they were they were taking too much interest uh, apparently she listened when they they zoomed her to write this article she listened to the harness your hope strange in uh, with enthusiasm without any out any surprise and she says it really shows the power and influence that these music recommendation systems have but it's also really difficult to know how these things work and the only people that can really answer that are companies like spotify and the engineers there but she says we're not even sure if these people could answer why or how a recommendation system works as well because they're, they're pretty complex things it's really strange this maybe it's quite funny in a way if it, it, it feels like the best way to get a hit on spotify is to make your music as generic as possible mm. so in a way it kind of discourages creativity because if you if your your song sounds like other songs it is more likely to be picked up in an algorithm it is the ultimate if you like that you'll like this we hear you like mid-paced semi-successful early 90s grunge music well here's some <laughs> more like that and mm. and so that that seems really but equally you could argue that, that that there's this same strangeness and lack of explanation for why certain records are number one hits who would have put money on everyone's free to wear sunscreen a mm. spoken word 
university graduation uh, eulogy um, over a rather dirty kind of backing track that people went crazy for by Baz Luhrmann. It was a, it was a, the ultimate one hit number, uh, one hit wonder, you know, number one and then nothing else. There, people can't always explain why certain pop songs mm. are hits, why certain songs are, are adopted by people and hit number one and certain other brilliant songs don't it's really strange but i just thought this was fascinating and a bit scary that spotify have seen to unleashed an algorithm that not even they can explain i mean they they don't even really know why this is happening well i was unaware of all of this because i've had that function per autoplay function permanently turned Mm. off so i I didn't even i'd forgotten that it was there but i I do love that spotify by the way have a chap glenn mcdonald with that job title (laughs) such a delicious thing to have on your cv i mean i would think imagine going to the job center and what sort of work are you looking for well I was a, a a data alchemist at my last job. It's absolutely marvellous. The career, career advisors of our youth would be way out of their depth, wouldn't they, with that one? Mm. Um, apparently, this fellow, he's responsible for Spotify's offshoot, The Sound of Everything, which, again, I was unaware of. There's a mm. He, he, he um, curates a playlist of 5,000 songs from every genre they track. Who knew that there were 5,000 genres? Well, occasionally my friend sends me a list of the latest genres from Spotify, and some of them are completely head-mangling. Vaporwave was quite big a couple of years ago, (laughs) apparently. Well, they also call it Every Noise at Once, and they have a a separate Mm. sort of brother website that looks after every noise at once i had a look at it uh, earlier this week it's actually rather interesting but i don't necessarily see it as a bad thing that spotify recommends tracks that are similar to songs that we've chosen before but there does feel like a slightly sinister edge to the point mm. that we now have software so embedded in our lives it's mm. making choices for us and you wonder where where that will where all that lead. ends yeah mm. i don't i don't disagree well, apropos of all of this, Jules, mm. h- here are my best B-sides, my top five B-sides Ooh, of da, all time. At number <laughs> five, yep. at number five, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Carry On. It was the mm. B-side to teach your children. Mm. At number four, Simon and Garfunkel, The Only Living Boy in New York. The A-side mm. was Bridge Over Troubled Water. Number three in my all-time top five B-sides. Number three, Aretha Franklin, I Say a Little Prayer. It was on the other side of of, um, the house that Jack built. Mm. Number two, Beach Boys, God Only Knows. It was on the other side of Wouldn't It Be Nice. That is the ultimate A and B combo, I think. Number one, best B-side of all time, The Beatles, Rain. The B-side is <laughs> yes. a paperback writer. The reason why people go on and on about Ringo Starr's drumming being so good is basically rain. That was the, That's the ultimate kind of example of, of how Ringo Starr played the drums like they were the lead instrument, I think, really. And like you say, it's, I mean, given that it was the, the B-side to paperback writer, which is already a complete corker by the... And a non-album, a non-album single yeah. as well. I, yeah. I think it's, you know, I think it probably does have a... It's, it's got to the point where so many boring old men talk about it on talking head shows that i do think maybe i ought to find another favorite b-side ever but you know it maybe maybe it's so popular because it is good 100 percent ringo's best drumming performance as you say and record it's recorded in only two quick sessions at abbey road in april 1966 mm. 
interesting thing that I didn't know um, until this week was that it was the first single um, to be cut using automatic transient overload control, ATOC, which meant it could be transferred onto the grooves at a loud volume. So that's oh, that's interesting. I did the, not know that. So that I also sounds that. like a Stereo Lab album title, by the way. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly automatic the sort transient of, overload control. I can see the cover. It's kind of yellow with green sort of dots on the front of it. Yeah, I know exactly what it is. But I can tell you my favourite B-side, if you Don't like. do. I haven't done a full five. Um... So I'll I'll explain I'll I'll do the A side first because you won't have heard heard of it. The A side is a chap called substitute is a is a, a track called Substitute, um, recorded in 1978 at Mom and Pop's company store, uh, which is in L.A. California. It's disco in genre, which might give you a clue as to what it is. Uh, it was recorded by its singer, um, written by Freddie Perrin and Dino Fakaris. Um, the um the uh, beat did so this b-side it was written by by those people recorded by gloria Gaynor. the eight oh. the b-side to substitute is i will survive by Good gloria Gaynor. however um the sub- substitute is an okay pop song you wouldn't say it was awful you wouldn't say it was great it's just okay um it was had the fortune to be released at the time when a lot of american disc jockeys were still playing off record players we were just before the point where cds were coming in and obviously long before the point of electronic playout systems and curious djs that might be you know well-minded towards an artist might be inclined to flip a single over and see what's on the b-side the main person that did this was a dj called richie kazor spelled k-a-c-z-o-r apologies if i pronounced that wrong it might be kajor i'm not sure but anyway he was from uh, studio 54 which i'm sure you and lots of our listeners would have heard of mm. he flipped over substitute ironically into instead of playing substitute played something <laughs> else instead which is i will survive and he started to play it substitute appears on the billboard bubbling under the hot the hot 100 chart otherwise known as the here's what you could have won chart for four weeks in october mm-hmm. november 1978 it gets to a number 107 and doesn't get any higher however by this point so many radio djs are playing i will survive in its own right that it enters the billboard hot 100 in december that year and by march 1979 it's got to number one they shot the video to that record after it got to number one that's the extent to which i will survive was not meant to be a hit it was just a b-side what an amazing story isn't that mad and there is and and if you think that's amazing there's something else about i will survive which is also fascinating which i will tell when we play it at the end okay well we're almost there thanks very much for as always for listening this week yes as always thank you so i i just literally took a sip of wine i'm really very much on a friday (laughs) night around these parts sorry but yes thank you ever so much for listening when you're not dancing to the algorithm, um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> where can we hear more of you this week? When I am not seeking out similarly mid-paced 1996 <laughs> American college rock hits. Yes, I am. This week I will be playing, well, perhaps music that's a little bit more like I Will Survive than than like Harness Your Hopes. Although if someone wants to request it, I did play Lamb Chop last week, so it could be worse. But anyway, I am on my Mixler channel, which is mixlr.com. Um, if you search for my name, Juliet Harris, on the site, you find my live page. I will be going live on Sunday evening from 7 till 9 p.m. doing my smooth sailing show, which is 
yacht rock, classic pop, MOR, easy listening, and stuff that is just nice to hear, really. It might not necessarily be quote unquote cool. It might not get on one of those Portland Bakery Spotify lists, but it is <laughs> it is enjoyable to listen to. And it's a it's a nice crowd of people that listen as well. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, by the way, if you go onto my page underneath the graphic, there's a little thing that's called Showreel. And if you'd like to try out what it sounds like, all of my previous shows are on there. And uh, after that uh, astonishing story uh, about Gloria Gaynor, here she is to play us out. She is, yes. Now, of course, I Will Survive is one of those songs, I think, that has slightly suffered from overplay in that if you've heard it enough times, unfortunately, you do kind of eye roll. As a live music DJ, I've seen a lot of shouty <laughs> hands go crazy to this and it does it does get a bit overplayed. Um, however, it, if you haven't heard it for a while and maybe you haven't heard it for a while, try and listen to this with slightly new ears because I think it's a magnificent, if you haven't heard it for ages, it really does sound magnificent. Um it's made it into the sort of American Congress library of significant music. So so I don't know if I'm just reading this into the tune because I know this story. But I, I when I've listened to it, I think that the thing that makes it so wonderful is that it is obviously quite a dramatic record. Um, it could easily tip into being melodramatic. It could, you know, the strings are just almost baroque, aren't they, that come in towards the end. And it's obviously a tune of kind of woe and someone leaving. But the theme of it is, you know, is not necessarily someone that is sad. It's someone that is resolved and someone that is, you know, yeah. is in control and is actually quite powerful. And for me, a lot of that comes from Gloria Gaynor's vocal, which is quite restrained. And actually, it does sound really, she's not over singing it. You know, to me, she's really kind of, uh, you know, she's really keeping control. And that adds the power to the song. There's another reason why it sounds like that. That was the rehearsal take. That wow. was not the final take. Gloria Gaynor did a rehearsal take. They booked a session to record it properly Gloria Gaynor did her back in before she could get into the studio, as a result of which could not make it for the session because she, I can't remember if she had emergency surgery, but she was certainly couldn't move Good and couldn't grief. get in. And because, of course, it was only a B-side and they probably didn't have the budget or weren't inclined to re-record it, they just thought, oh, it's only a B-side. We'll use the rehearsal vocal. That's fine. And then all of a sudden, the B-side becomes the hit and Gloria Gaynor's not quite getting giving it everything vocal take because it was only a rehearsal for a b-side made that record as magnificent as it is but have a listen and see what you think this is gloria gainer and i will survive
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs>